I just want to make it clear, I am not Ken Wilson dressed as Shane Wanamaker. I am actually Shane Wanamaker. Uh, so I know that that is confusing, as is why are we going to Nehemiah this morning? But as we are in the fall and we are heading towards Operation Christmas Child, one of my favorite times of the year where we get to pack and come together as a church to send out over 6,000 gospel opportunities that will impact children, their families, their communities. Uh, it is a great time to be reminded of some hope. And we will pick back up in Judges next week. But uh, along the way in Judges, at some point, uh, Ken made a statement that I had to wrestle with. It took me a while just to let it sink in, process, pray through, and really evaluate for myself. And what he said is over and over in, the, in Judges, the people cry out, but they never repent. The pain hits so hard, they cry out for rescue, but their hearts never changed. And I had to look at, at myself and think, is that true of me? Is the only time I cry out is when something isn't going the way I want? Do I confess my sins? Do I turn uh, back to the Lord? And do I, I repent of, of any sins that have entangled me? And I wrestled with that. And along the way, in one of my classes for seminary, uh, we had to observe and outline and deal with Nehemiah chapter 1. And as I was reading through Nehemiah chapter 1, I'm like, there it is. There is where we can see a contrast to Judges. We see in Nehemiah a stark contrast. And so this morning, as Ken is taking a, a much-needed weekend off after such a busy season with OCC ramping up, and we've had two college candidates that came and stayed with us for a weekend, and ladies and gentlemen, we have hired a college pastor. Yes. We finally get to get rid of that deadbeat that's been standing in and, and move on to, to a great one. He'll be starting uh, in January 2nd. He comes from Ohio. He and his wife and uh, their child, Selah. So we anxiously uh, look forward to the time when uh, Leah and Andrew Stouffer and their baby girl, uh, Selah, join us in December and start January. So this morning, I want to give us a good dose of hope. Because as I was reading through Nehemiah and working through it, I think Nehemiah gives us a great picture of someone who approaches God with hope. And what we're going to see in this passage is Nehemiah desires what God desires, which is different from Judges, right? Where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Nehemiah knows who God is, and as he knows who God is, he also knows who he is. And Nehemiah knows God's promises, and he clings to them, and he trusts the Lord for big things. This is what we're going to see in this passage. And the reason we're taking time is because it's such a contrast to what we've been working through in Judges. Over and over, that repetition that just echoes in my head of everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And I think of my own life. I go, where am I doing what's right in my eyes instead of seeking the Lord and grounding my life in his truth? And then I look around and I see some of the, the crazy teachings that are out there. 
the, that people are accepting doctrines that are not uh, grounded in truth. And I think, is this where we're at? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And what do we need? How do we see God change that? And I think we get a picture of that in Nehemiah. So I tried to erase Ken's name and put my name on him, so I looked intelligent. Uh, but we all know that, that that's very difficult. Uh, here's a timeline of the Bible. And you'll see a whole bunch of books that are missing because I wanted to zoom in so you could actually see it. I do have copies of them out on the Connection Center and on the website. Uh, but over here in the middle center, or middle left, is Judges. And we're going to jump ahead about 850 to 900 years into Nehemiah. And so this is after the downward spiral that we see in Judges. This is after uh, the Babylonians and the Syrians come. They're scattered. There's 70 years. Uh, people have begun to return. A remnant has begun to return the temple has been rebuilt. Ezra is ministering in Jerusalem. And then we pick up in chapter 1 of Nehemiah. And where we start is Nehemiah gets a bad report. He has some people show up, and he wants to know what they have seen, what they have experienced, and what the state of Jerusalem is. And the report he gets is not something that he's excited about. Let's take a look. Now it happened in the month Chislev, in the 20th year, when I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, and some men from Judah came. And I asked them about the Jews who had escaped and had survived the captivity, and about Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the captivity are in great distress and disgrace. And the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire." Back in the ancient East, the walls meant a whole bunch to the people. And to have this report of the, the people that are back in Jerusalem, again, they've rebuilt the temple, which I just love that their first priority was not safety and comfort of protection of a wall, right? They established the center of the, the community. They established the place of worship. They rebuilt the temple. And in fact, after that, they tried to rebuild the walls, but the king got upset because he felt this was rebellious. And so he squashed that attempt. And he actually made a law that said, you may not rebuild your walls. Because that was an affront and a threat to the king. So Nehemiah hears the state that people have returned. Yes, the temple is there. But the walls remain in shambles and have been burned with fire. And this has brought shame and vulnerability to the remnant that has returned. The people, the enemies that surround them, mock them and can come in and fight with them at will because they are unprotected. And this guilt, this shame, this burden for his people overwhelms Nehemiah. And this is where we see Nehemiah's heart and he desires what God desires because he wants God's people to thrive as God intends. But in the state of the report, that isn't happening. And we see how he responds when he says, now when I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Have you ever received news 
that hit you so hard it took your breath away? That made you just involuntarily sit down? It knocked you off your feet. That is what happens with Nehemiah. When it says, I sat down, it is a sudden, unexpected sitting. This literally, the news knocked Nehemiah off his feet. It was so troubling and so overwhelming, he sat down and his emotions began to pour out as he wept. And as the news sunk in, he went into mourning, an an extended lamenting of the situation of his people, the remnant that has returned to Jerusalem, the state of Jerusalem, and the shame and vulnerability the people are experiencing there. It says he did that for days, weeping and mourning. And some of you know this well. I, I remember the news of my mom going on to a ventilator after, in the middle of the night uh, after we left her that, that evening thinking things were getting better. And I remember hearing that, and it just took my breath away, and I could only just cry. And she would go on to pass away a few more days. And I, I remember the initial weeping. I remember just that deep-seated pain and grief I was experiencing. And then just going to the Lord, going, I don't get it. I don't understand. I, I just need you. And Nehemiah gets this news. It knocks him off his feet. He weeps and mourns for days and then turns the, the mourning into action. He starts fasting and praying, being dependent on God and seeking him and, and acknowledging he is the God of heaven. And, you know, there are times where when reality hits, it knocks us off our feet. When we realize the situation isn't as we wish it would be. When the situation is different than would, how we would have chosen, it knocks us off, off our feet. And one of the things I want us to take away just from this first part is, when reality doesn't line up with God's desires, we should pray. When we see things not as they should be, when we look around and we go, I am sick of the way this is going because that is not what God desires. Our response is not to grumble and complain, but to pray. Nehemiah desires what God desires, and we should as well. Now Nehemiah begins to pray. Verses 5 through 11, Nehemiah pours his heart out to the Lord. And it's such a great pattern that I think we can get a lot out of if we go through it. He says, Please, Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps the covenant and faithfulness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Man, Nehemiah knows who God is. He says, you are the God of heaven. You are great and awesome. You are feared and revered. You are the creator almighty, the eternal God, the God who is above every other God. You are the one. And he approaches this God of the universe with confidence, knowing who he is. And he goes on to describe him as a covenant keeper and a faithful. And he's faithful to those that he loves, that loves his commandments. And when you take the the words in this part, one of them is the word hesed, which Ken has talked extensively, extensively about over the years. You break it down into this. Nehemiah is saying, God, you are steadfast in your love. You are a covenant keeper. You honor your covenants through the thick and thin, through the ups and downs, regardless of 
how we're responding. You keep your end of the bargain. You are steadfast in your love. And, you know, so often we desire that. We desire people around us to be steadfast in their love. And people fail us. And we miss the mark that there is one who is always steadfast. There is one who is always faithful. There is one who is always with us through thick and through thin. Nehemiah knows who God is. And he approaches the Lord in his mourning and his weeping and his fasting to ask God for something big. But you know, if, if you're like me, when I spend time just praising God, and I'm talking to God, God, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your love. Thank you that you don't turn away from me. And I'm saying all these things about who God is. As I'm going through it, a little voice in the back of my head reminds me who I am. God, you are so faithful. And I'm not. God, you are so loving and, and so perfect. And I'm not. God, you are so holy and great and all-knowing, and all-powerful, and I'm not. And that leads me to confess, God, you are, and I am not. You are great, I am not. I've been acting like it. I've been thinking it. I haven't involved you in anything, so apparently I have it, but I'm not. And Nehemiah, as he proclaims who God is, he's reminded of who he is, and talks to God about it. He says, Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants. And I can just picture him. He's just talked to God about who he is. And now he's saying, Please pay attention. God, I've got something big to ask. But before I do, I just want to be clear. And he goes on to say, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have committed against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. Great and awesome God, steadfast in your love, true uh, covenant keeper through thick and thin. God, I confess we have blown it. We have acted corruptly. You gave us the Ten Commandments. We disobeyed. You gave us statutes on how to live. We disregarded. You gave us ordinances. You gave us judgments and laws, and we just turned our back. God, I confess my sins. I don't just confess my sins. I confess the sins of my household. I confess the sins of my people. God, we have messed up. And there it was when I read this, like he's repenting. He's saying, I messed up. Not only me, my household, my people, we are a mess. We have turned our back on you. He isn't just crying out going, man, it's so hard. Just get us out of here. He's saying, man, we've turned our back. When was the last time you confessed? You repented of your sins where you realized when you look at a holy God, you see the unholiness in yourself. And you go, God, I need you. I confess I've fallen short. I'm so thankful for your grace and your mercy 
and your provision of your son, Jesus Christ, who paid for my sins. Father, I, I need you. You know, knowing who you are, if you put your faith in Christ, you are loved. You are redeemed. You are chosen. You are forgiven. And it, I have to remind myself, if, if I'm all these things because I put my faith in Christ and because of the grace of God, then why would I run? Why would I turn to anything else? Why would I hide as if God doesn't know? Remember, he's great and awesome. He is feared and revered because he is above all. He not only knows all my thoughts, he knows all my actions, he knows all, my hairs, all the hair on, on my head, even if it's thinning, he knows all of it. And he loves me. And he forgives me. Why would I not come to him? Why would I not ask for forgiveness and confess my sins? He already knows them. Nehemiah desires what God desires. He knows who God is. He knows who he is. And he knows God's promises. Look at what he says. Remember, please, the word which you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those of you who have been scattered were in the most remote part of the heavens, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I have chosen to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeem by your great power and your strong hand. Nehemiah knows God's promises. He is experiencing God's promises, right? If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. They have been scattered. The Babylonians have come and taken them off, and enemies have driven them further and further away. He knows God is faithful to his word. He has seen it. You know, I think we live in a world where we don't think there are consequences for our sins because we might not see them immediately. And neither did the Israel, Israelites, right? I mean, this downward spiral, this beautiful toilet that Judges is, I mean, it was a while after that before the Babylonians and Assyrians came in and scattered God's people. But it came. He knows God is faithful to his word. He's a covenant keeper. And he's seen that first part in action. As he's not in Jerusalem himself. He's like, remember. Remember your promises. Remember what you said to Moses. And it's interesting because, you know, we don't think about asking God to remember something, right? Because he hasn't forgotten. He isn't sitting there... He, he isn't like me as a parent when my boys go, well, you said, I'm like, I don't think I said that. And Anna looks at me and goes, you said that. Like, I did? Why would I say that? Well, because you're an idiot. <laughs> Thank you. That's true. He says, remember. And what we need to know about this word, remember, it, it is the constant theme in Nehemiah. Over and over, the word remember is spoken. God, remember. People, remember, remember, remember. But the connotation is not just recall, it's recall and act. God, remember your word to, to Moses. You said if we were unfaithful, you would scatter. But if we turn back, if we return to you, you would gather us 
from the ends of the earth and bring us back. God, I have confessed my sin. I have confessed that my household sin. I'm confessing on behalf of Israel, and I plead with you. Keep your covenant. Return. Gather and put us back in Jerusalem. I love that picture of remember. But as I was thinking about this, I'm like, okay, if it's not for God, if he's not up there going, now what, what did I tell Moses? I, I just can't recall, which he's not. There is a benefit of asking God to remember. And that's asking God to remember his promises and act accordingly helps us to remember his promises and live accordingly. Like remembering what God has promised helps us live in light of that promise. And it isn't about God remembering, it's about us remembering who God is, that he keeps his promises, and we should live out his promises in our lives. And that made me go, okay, what am I trying to get God to remember? What, what should I, what is the promise to us as New Testament believers, not some random passage in the Old Testament that's for Israel that I'm going to claim for us, but what has, he, what has the Bible truly communicated that we can believe in and, and be promised. Well, here's some I came up with. First John, he promises to forgive. There's promise of a secure salvation. There's a promise to build his church. There's a promise to never leave us or forsake us, a promise to return, and a promise to wipe every tear. And I don't know what promise you need this morning to remember and to seek God on. More and more, the stats are showing that uh, with COVID, we have lost 20% of the church, if not 30%. Just that 18 months, the past 18 months or so, has just eliminated 20 to 30% of all the churches uh, across the, the globe. People have just stopped coming, about 30%. And I just read a devastating article the other day of so many pastors have left ministry because of the the stress and the the hardship that COVID brought on. I'm like, God, what is going on? If the people are leaving, if the pastors are leaving, I mean, what's what's going to happen? And as I was working through this, I'm like, there it is. The promise that Jesus himself will build his church. Like, that's something I can be praying. And maybe you've been looking around, and you're like, I just, the church is a mess. I, the church is getting irrelevant. The church, and you've got a long laundry list of what the, the capital C church or even the little C church has going wrong. Man, we can complain all day, but if we get on our knees like Nehemiah did, and we say, God, you said yourself, you will build your church and the gates of Hades will not prevail. God, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what you're going to call me to do to to be part of seeing your church built, but I'm here. I'm ready. And I confess my sins. I confess our church's sins. I confess the the sins of our our churches in the nation and around the world. God, but build your church. I think it will change our view of the church to line up more with what he has. What promise do you need to remember this week? What promise do you need to reframe your prayers with? 
God, you promise that you're going to return. Father, I believe it, and I'm going to live in light that you are coming back. And we don't know when. We just know that we are supposed to be faithful until you do. And so today, I will live faithfully for you. And I'm looking forward to the day that you return and make all things new and set everything right. Which of these promises do you need this week? Finally, in verse 11, the first part, Nehemiah makes a big ask. And a big God deserves big ask. He thinks and trusts God for big things. And I, I just pause right there and I'm like, what big things are you trusting God for? What are you going to the Lord for asking that is big? That you're like, I can't accomplish this on my own. This is only God. Because Nehemiah has an ask. He says, please, Lord, may your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and the prayer of your servants who delight to revere your name. And please make your servant successful today and grant him mercy before this man. And you have to keep reading or know about Nehemiah to understand how big of a request this is. Because in the plain text right here, if you're only reading chapter 1, if you've never been exposed to this, it's like, why is he asking for favor with this man? Big deal. It's just a dude. Well, this dude, we are revealed in the, next, or the, the second half of verse 11, is the king. And Nehemiah is actually the cupbearer to the king. And the cupbearer has a few roles. One is he gets to, gets to go choose what drink suits the king for that day. But part two of that is not only does he get to pick out the good stuff, he has to taste the good stuff before the king drinks it. Why? Because it might have poison in it. And so he's the, he's the dry run before the king can enjoy his drink to make sure that someone hasn't tried to, to off the king and has poisoned the drink. So he picks out, selects the drink, takes it to the king, drinks a little bit to show that it's not poisonous, and when he doesn't die, the king's like, okay, I'll have a drink. But in that intimate relationship where his life is on the line, the king actually starts viewing the cupbearer as a, a cherished advisor, someone that he can bend his ear and, and talk to. So they become close. But this man, and I love the language of this man, because in the beginning we talked about great and awesome God, God of the heavens, this great imagery of a powerful God of the universe. And this king that is mighty on earth is just this man. I love the contrast Nehemiah has. So Nehemiah asks God, hey, at some point, would you provide a way for me to find favor with the king to accomplish your purposes? He wants to go back to Jerusalem. He wants to rebuild those walls and take away the shame and disgrace that has come on his people. He wants to be part of God gathering up that remnant and returning them to Jerusalem. Standing in the way is the king. The king who earlier made a law that you cannot build the walls back in Jerusalem. And if you flip the chapter in the growth guide, the reading that's in your uh, bulletin for this week, you get to read some of this if you follow that. 
If you turn the chapter to chapter 2, what you see is four months later, in the presence of the king, the king takes notice of Nehemiah and says, what's wrong with you? And Nehemiah's like, hey, this place where all my dead relatives are buried, it's, it's in ruins and it needs walls. I mean, how can I live with this grace and be happy when all their remains are unprotected by a wall? And the king's like, that's terrible. I should let you go rebuild the walls. And Nehemiah's like, you know what would really help? If you funded and provided everything I need to rebuild those walls. He's like, done. What else? He's like, it would also be really helpful to have a military escort to go back that I can show everybody my badge of, hey, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. He's like, I should do that. And so he does it. And the king who said no walls provides all the funding and the protection to go rebuild those walls as only God can orchestrate. Nehemiah desires what God desires. He knows who God is. He knows who he is. And he trusts God for big asks because he knows he serves a great and awesome God. You know, the faithfulness of God, when we think about it and we see it in Nehemiah, And we'll see it through the downward spiral and all the way through until Jesus comes that God is faithful. And when I step back and just said, so what what do I want to take away from this? What does God want to communicate to us this morning? Is his faithfulness drives his people to repentance and prayer. Repentance and dependence on the great and awesome God who is faithful and steadfast in his love who is with us through the thick and thin. That faithfulness of God should drive us, you and me, to prayer and repentance. So what do we do? Some next steps to think about. The first one is to proclaim and praise God for his faithfulness daily. Maybe you need to be reminded of who God is and that he is faithful that he is steadfast, that he is the promise keeper. He is unlike you and me. And maybe every day this week, you need to just start your day or end your night with just praising God for who he is and thanking him for his faithfulness. Maybe it's been a while since you've confessed. Maybe there's something going on in your life that you're struggling with. Maybe you're entangled in sin And you need to, in real time, confess and repent of that sin. Instead of that habit of habitual sin, get in the habit of habitual confession and repentance. Talk to somebody and ask them to help keep you accountable so that it's out in the open and it's known instead of struggling and wrestling with it alone. Maybe this week is a turning point in that struggle because you're going to confess and repent and finally, maybe, maybe it's kind of like Nehemiah. He's not just praying for things for himself. He's like, this is bigger than me. I need to be praying for me, yes. I need to confess my sins. I need to be saying, God, you're great and good. I'm not. I'm a mess, but you forgive. And when I turn to you, you're going to gather. Maybe you need to be praying that for other people. 
Maybe you just write in the margins three people that you're going to commit to pray for this week. Maybe it's for their sins. Maybe it's for provision. Maybe it's for healing. But you're going to commit to daily pray that God does a work in their life.